Welcome to No Time to Waste, the podcast that inspires and motivates us to maximize our moments. I'm your host, Allison Haddon. I'm battling terminal cancer, but I'm focused on living my best life as my best self every day. Join me as I chat with resilient adventurers, seekers, trailblazers, and exceptionally good humans as we explore what it means to live fully because there's no time to waste for all of us. Today, you'll meet Cecilia Benz, my personal palliative care nurse. If you're like, palliative care, what is that? Or if you have heard of it and you're like, well, isn't that for people in hospice who are like days out from death? Um, Well, you'll get all your answers today. My hope is that you will not only walk away with some new knowledge, because I personally had no idea about these kinds of resources for people like me, zero, But you'll also hear the perspective from this literal angel walking on earth who sees her job as one of the most special coveted ones she could have ever hoped for. I'm so grateful to have her in my life and I look forward to her care now and through every phase as she shepherds me through the final miles to my next adventure. Here's Cecilia Benz, my ride or die palliative care nurse. For no time to waste. Okay, we are here. Cecilia, Cecilia Benz. Are we Benz now? Mm-hmm. We're Benz. Yes. Okay. Ben. So, Cecil- ben. No S. Benz. Benz. Okay. <laughs> Cecilia Benz. Uh, Lots of Benz. Benz. What? Uh, first. First off, how do we? How do we know each other? Um, we know each other through um, work, through um, palliative care. So does that do do I work in palliative care? I work in palliative care. <laughs> you work in palliative care and um remind me of how the whole process worked in terms of you are my palliative care nurse. I am. Okay, I just wanted to go <laughs> just wanted to like reconfirm. Um you're my palliative care nurse. Remind me kind of how the process went. Sure. Um, not only your oncology nurse practitioner, but a palliative care nurse practitioner Got could it. work hand in hand, yeah. offer you another layer of support. Got it. And the way it was described to me, so what I've learned in the last like few months is a lot of people, just kind of uh, listeners, you know, might not know what palliative care is, um, or they may associate it with hospice or end of life. Um, Mm -hmm. So can you explain, as you did to me, I think when we first met, um, you did such a nice job, like explain to me, like what's palliative care? Yeah. And like, what are the, yeah, let's go there first. Okay. Um, In palliative care, I'm considered a specialist, just like an oncologist or a cardiologist. And my specialty is quality of life and symptom management, Um, making sure people are happy, enjoying their life, and feeling their absolute best in in every sphere that 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 represents. You do garner your expertise. I'm also a hospice provider, and you garner your expertise in symptom management from your hospice care, where you're no longer treating 
the um, underlying cause. There's no more diagnostics workup, no more uh, following treatment. Mm -hmm. But maybe five or six years ago, I did my first palliative consult and it was wonderful. Some smart person said, let's take this to people who have a year or two years or three years Mm -hmm. or four years or five years or however long to live and make sure that they also have their best symptom management, Mm -hmm. that somebody's just looking at them for their quality of life, Mm -hmm. making sure that they're feeling their absolute best. So it's a great job. My job is to help you feel your best. Okay. So talk to me about get real specific because people are probably going if, if someone's never heard that word palliative right um they're probably going well okay you want people to feel their best what like let's get into it like what okay. are we what are we really talking about here you got it um so for someone to qualify for hospice i have to reasonably believe that medically you have six months or less to live right and and that you're aligned with hospice that you're no longer seeking any treatments right. of any sort. Um, even if they're palliative treatments. Um, palliative treatments, for example, would be someone with, you know, multiple myeloma or um, a condition where they are on chronic, they have anemia of a chronic disease. Mm. So they're on chronic blood transfusions, may, maybe every seven to 10 days, they're getting blood transfusions because it helps put some pep in their steps. So they just don't feel so run down and awful Got it. because their hemoglobin's so. tanking. People hit a point where they are just over that or it's not an option anymore for one reason or another. Got it. And then you would be more appropriate for hospice. You got to be ready in your heart yeah. as far as your treatment plans for for a lot of reasons. Yeah. So palliative care is for people with much longer to live. Like me. Right. Exactly. Yeah. So your symptom management, Mm -hmm. you've probably noticed I'm always asking about pain, nausea and vomiting, constipation. How's your appetite? Mm -hmm. Um, But I'm also asking, um, how's your life? Are you getting outside? How's Birdie? Are you happy? Mm -hmm. Um, It's looking at that whole picture. The whole person. Totally. Okay. So that, yeah. So uh, going back, because I think it's really helpful for people to understand like the timeline, my timeline and how it's worked so far. So August, August, they told me that it was terminal. They connected me, uh, they referred me to your company, your company assigned you to me. You asked a lot of the questions that you just talked about. You asked a lot about the symptoms. Um, But I think in that initial conversation, you also asked beyond kind of the medical, um, you asked some other questions as well. What are what are some of the kind of questions that you remember asking or you typically ask when you're starting to get to know a new patient? We always discuss their diagnosis. I want to make sure that they um, have some understanding. And some people don't want to hear anymore, and that's totally fine. I always ask about goals of care. What's important to them? Do they want to spend more time outside? Um, I saw a guy today who really wants to live until July because his granddaughter's getting married. Um, some people really have some trips that they want to make, or there's a loved one that they haven't seen in a while that they really want to see. I try to find out what matters to the patient, what's important to them. Yeah. Um, we talk about side effects of fixing, um, getting rid of symptoms, putting a lid on them and getting them out of there mm-hmm. and what some of the side effects might be. For example, if I'm really getting after pain, Mm. 
we're walking that line between we don't want to sedate someone because I don't want you to miss a minute with your loved ones. Right. We don't want them to be in a lot of pain either. So we talk about realistically what's important to them right. and we acknowledge and honor that that can change at any time yep. and that we're there. I'm just there to follow the person down this fluid um, river that we're both on Yeah. And to steer whatever they say, whatever they want, to represent them. Ask who's important in their life. Yep. If they have a support system. Yep. Um, one of my favorite um, patients who I saw yesterday, mm-hmm. cancer is not his biggest issue. Mm. It's being alone. He doesn't He doesn't have anybody. Oh. So um, just getting supports in place. If people would benefit from volunteers for companionship. Um, I just remember, Celia, like one you were just your your energy was just one of such a nurturing warm-hearted spirit um you were just you like i just wanted to give you a hug and you know i don't know where are you from again because that accent i wanted to give you a hug too you're so easy to love and care about oh see and then you say things like that um where are you from again I'm from Atlanta, Georgia. Atlanta, Georgia. Okay. So yeah, that accent too, on top of all of it, you're just like, can you make, can you cook something for me? Like, that's like, I I want to, yeah, I want to be like, bake something for me. And then let's like sit on the porch and just hang out with our dogs. Um, But I, I I laugh, I, you know, I joke, but I just remember in that period of time when everything was just so overwhelming and I was kind of, uh, you know, it was the first time that I was having to grapple with this idea that, oh my God, like this cancer is going to kill me. Like I'm going to die. You know, I had, I did not know. I was one of the people that thought that palliative care meant hospice care, right? Like I didn't realize that palliative care meant like treating the person holistically, understanding, like you talked about, what matters to this person? Who are the people that matter? What are the values that matter? What are their spiritual or religious beliefs? What are the most important things to them that you probably wouldn't put in an advanced directive, but are really key? But I just remember, Cecilia, like having that conversation with you initially and having you you leave after that appointment. And I was just like, that was... I just felt so seen, mm. you know, like I just, I felt like, wow, that person really cared. And that person asked all the questions that I didn't realize I wanted anybody to ask, but I do. Oh, and, good. and like, she has such a good vibe. Like she's, she's just a really like, like a, she's got a warm heart. You can just tell. Um, and you know, I, that was just, you were my introduction to this world of palliative care that I didn't know existed. And I just want to let you know, you were a great representative. Thank you, Allison. You're, you're a wonderful person. Thank you. Very easy to connect with you, which I think is the key to palliative care. Um, you know, I've, I've got a DEA number and prescriptive authority, but, uh, you know, a monkey could write you a prescription. Right. Palliative care is really about human beings mm. engaging in mutual care mm. of each other and getting to know 
this really valuable, incredible, um, so lovable person, the honor of getting to know them and getting to ask these questions about who they are, Mm. um, you know, peeling away all the layers and getting to love every step of that and meet this really, you know, noble, amazing human being in there to get to know them and then to represent what is important to them, what matters, um, and to respect that and honor that in, in your work. Mm. It's a great job. Okay. All right. So it's a great job. Yes. So we're in where, you know, we can take me, as I said, you and I both agree we're not in a, I have less than six months situation because I am still, my, my treatment is working, um, which is awesome. So right now it's like all rosy, but I recognize that it's not always going to be like this. So as we move through this process, how educate me on how your role will evolve? Well, um, if, if people's symptom management needs increase, they're having worsening side effects um, from, from, from treatment, it's my job to step in and to manage that. Um, also, I work really closely with the ordering specialists and in this case, oncology. Um, and we're always talking about functional status and functional status. Fun- I mean, to put it in a nutshell is, is the person eating, you know, sleeping or can they get out of bed and walk and eat and, you know, do these like normal human things. Um, increased symptom management needs often means I'm just in your life more. I'm just around more instead of seeing me every now and again you see me more often and you'd be shocked where I show up. Whenever my patients are in the hospital, I magically show up. If they're in a facility, I'm there too. You just can't get rid of me. I'm always (laughs) by your side Um, and always representing the human being that come to love and honor so much and say, no, 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 they wouldn't like that. This is, you know, let's try this. And, and also including the people that you love and that are important to you, making sure that they're informed mm-hmm. up to date, that they're aware of where we're at um, in the journey, and that if they have concerns for your plan of care, for symptom management needs, that we're listening to them also, that they're feeling respected and heard and part of things. There's nothing worse than the sense of powerlessness that can come up yeah. um, for family members during this time. One of the reasons I went into this work is the ability to do something, to face the um, the word hopeless and dismiss it and say, get get out, you know, yep. I don't believe it. I don't believe in you. Um, and to find that there is, there is always hope. There's always something to be done and there's always something helpful you can do, even if it's just being there. Um, my favorite Willie Nelson song mm-hmm. says, love is the greatest healer to be found. And that's true. And my secret for really good care Mm -hmm. is really loving you, loving the patients. It guides everything that I do. Um, Backing up to what you said uh, a little bit earlier, um, how, how, how does one get here? 
what's your path? What was your path to becoming a palliative care nurse? So one of my first um, experiences with death, yeah. um, my um, granny Carrie passed away mm-hmm. on hospice. So everyone being there and being present mm. during her death, it was really peaceful and really nice. I didn't, I remember wondering like, mm. what would it look like Yeah. Um, when somebody I knew just, you know, passed away in front of me. Yeah. And it was not this like, you know, um, you know, I don't know what I was expecting, mm-hmm. but it was very peaceful and very easy. And I remember there were two st- staff members, probably nurses there, them hugging my mom and my grandmother mm-hmm. and just supporting them and being there. And just, um, it's like this, just this outpouring of love mm-hmm. from these people during this time. So they were super super helpful at a time when I think human beings think there's nothing to be done. There's nothing you can do. How old were you in that experience? I can't remember. Maybe 12. Very young. Oh, wow. Okay. Wow. And then I had another experience before I was a nurse practitioner, before I was a nurse, I was a nurse's aide Mm -hmm. and I was working in this kind of rural community hospital Mm -hmm. and this lady was invented admitted from a facility, an elderly lady, and she had been horribly neglected there. So I remember um, getting her and just very gently washing her hair and Mm. cleaning her up. And I remember feeding her and she commented how good the food was. And, you know, I had eaten at this hospital many times. The food was not good. But (laughs) I think it was just, I, I remember too, when I was washing her hair, her eyes were closed and she said, you're so gentle. I know to this, to this day, it gets to me what this woman had been through, mm-hmm. just offering her love mm-hmm. and respect and care. And, um, it was, I was working the overnight shift as the nurse aide. Mm-hmm. she passed away that night. And I remember just seeing her, mm-hmm. just seeing her in there, um, her childlike self, her original self. Yeah. That's sweet and curious. She was like, Oh, what's that? And, Mm. um, she just responded Mm. to be loved. And so I know she passed away, cared for, respected, clean, fed, like things that human beings deserve no matter what. Um, and even, I don't know, even modern film and books. Yeah. They, we intrinsically know that the dying human is this elevated, um, sacred thing. And it's even depicted that way in books and in film. You see the the character become elevated, become their best self. Right. That really happens. It really happens. So that experience of caring for the dying was just, it didn't... (laughs) I didn't shy away from it and it wasn't harmful. It made me feel good to honor her that way, to, to love her at that time. Have a, a naturally sunny disposition, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> you have a, <laughs> you have a big <laughs> smile. And as I said, a very, very warm energy that I can even feel in the virtual world right now, as we look, uh, look at each other on screen. Um, and I would assume, you know, it takes a specific person. It takes a special person to do what you do and to say that you love it 
is there anything when you look back to you growing up, you as a kid, or even just your personality that you knew you were meant for a really special service oriented career where you would have a massive impact on the lives of so many people? I do think I was really born with, with a servant heart. Um, I do enjoy helping people. Some people just love, you know, the, I get so much out of, um, helping people. Mm -hmm. It's really good for me and I'm able to see everybody can't do it. And I, I realized that because I've worked with a lot of good people that were amazing and smart and lovely people with beautiful hearts that didn't last long in this line of work. Because when you're called to be a healer, um, you're not you're not going to fix everybody, and everyone's not going to get well, whatever that means. Right. Um, so I guess it's just understanding healing and benefit and goodness mm-hmm. um, in a different way. Mm-hmm. Um, and everybody can't shift gears from diagnostic workup, healing, patient gets better, whatever that means, right. to how do we help people live their best life where they are seen, heard, loved, respected, and that that's coming through in their plan of care. In medicine, it's something that we do leave out. And I, not to take away from science, I mean, my medical expertise in symptom management, um, there are things you do need to, need to know um, to, to prescribe right. properly. But without a heart behind it and without caring, you know, for the patient, it, yeah. it just, it gets lost. I think anybody that likes to help and never gives up and sees hope in every situation and, and can see the, the goodness um, in every situation, this is the job for you. If, if that's you, like <laughs> sign up now, do it because you will love this job. It's great. Okay. You've said all the great things. What's, what's the worst thing about your job? The worst thing about my job, yeah, uh, documentation. <laughs> <laughs> That's like what everybody says about everything. It doesn't matter. Bill. Yeah, right. Paperwork. Um, you know, I have mundane uh, tasks, just like anyone. You know, there's of course, like any professional career, I have mandatory training, and I have you know documentations, and we have deadlines, and like mm-hmm. the you know all every everything that that represents to each of us that you know anyone that hears this would be like oh yeah um, losing patience if you're if you yeah. just weren't ready to lose them yet um, you ha- you have to find a way you have to find a system mm-hmm. for you to be able to. Um, Keep your professional boundaries, but yeah. still love with an open heart because you can't get crushed right. um, in this line of work every time you lose somebody. So what feels great is when you have, um, I, I don't know what you'll think about this, but we often call it a good death. And it's when we've spoken about what the patient wants. Yep. We delivered on that. Mm-hmm. We kept their symptoms under control. Terminal agitation did not get a hold of them. Wait, what is, what is terminal agitation? Wow. Okay. Um, terminal agitation. It's like, so my husband sells guitars for a living. So he'll say crazy stuff like this is the pickup or the tuner bushing or the, 
the plots or whatever. And I'm like, okay. wow, I have no idea what you're talking about. And I feel like I say that is the response I get when I say terminal agitation. However, this is a it, human beings. It's part right. of the end stage of a human being's path yeah. that I would say 90% of my patients walk through to some degree. So terminal agitation happens. It's this confusing time. Do I want to know this? I want to know this, right? All right. This is doing the hard things. Tell me. I I would want to know this if I didn't know about it. So the human being starts feeling their feet on that next pathway. So they're here, but they're really close, just transitioning towards that last bend in the road ahead. And as they feel their feet on that next pathway, I have seen people who have not gotten out of bed in weeks or eaten food or anything, jump up out of bed, grab their purse and say, I've got to go meet Uncle Jimmy at the train station. Or they start pulling at their sheets. They start trying to get out of bed. They are ready to start that next journey. This is when people stop looking at me and start looking through me. And they say, I can see my brother on the other side of that river. Or they start seeing angels or whatever their faith tradition supports. Um, they start getting excited to start this next journey. They start being ready. So it's a time of confusion um, as the, like the spirit and the body begin to separate to start that new, exciting journey. Um, So you'll see people ready to go, trying to get out of bed, trying to um, get up, seeing people that they love, having conversations with them. They can kind of see me, but not really. They start looking through me and they're talking to some somebody else that I cannot yet see. What's the name of this again? Terminal agitation. And this is like a thing. It, this is definitely a thing. So if it becomes uncomfortable for the patient, we medicate against it because yeah. I want all my patients to open their eyes in that next life from a place of peace and comfort. Allison, I mean, it's like death is like, it's like the great alchemist. It like burns away all this crap that the world gave you that you're really not. Mm. And all these things like that are not you. Mm. And you're left with this like sacred, I mean, elevated. Yes. Glowing, noble. Yes human being that is so awesome and valuable and easy to love. And they're, they're just, they are so valuable. You're just, you're going to miss them and their time is coming and you get to be with them as this wave crest. And then the wave doesn't crash. They're just, they're just not there in a way that I can experience anymore. It's not the very end that, Mm -mm. that, that, that is tumultuous or, or stressful or, you know, um, no, I don't, I don't really know what death is or isn't. mm -hmm. We're just not able to access that human the same way that we always have been, Mm -hmm. but I am not convinced at all that it's a real separation that the people that we love are ever really away or away Mm -hmm. from us. I think of it more as like moving out of state, you know, like you can't drive down the street and see them. Right. And I've just seen too many kind of wacky things. There's some, there is something else. I have no idea what that might be or. I was going to ask. Yeah. What do you think? What do you think happens? I've seen so many people become excited 
or people who are very agitated just really have this profound peace that just ripples off of them like sunlight. Um, you just, you have to be there, I guess. You experience yeah. these things. It's almost like the person is uh, illuminated at times yeah. or glowing. And then you get a year or two away from it and you think, did I really see that? Yeah. But then it'll happen again. Mm. And they'll say the same things and like, um, all these loved ones. And then all of a sudden this person who was frightened is comforted and excited and they can't, you know, wait to get there. Um, remark, uh, remarkable experiences. You really have to be there and you realize that you've seen something profound Yeah, and I have no understanding at all. I would never claim to have any understanding of what that process is like on the other side, what's behind that veil. Yeah. There is something. I'm convinced of it. So um, I'm surely not afraid to die. I feel like there's going to be a lot of people there um, that I will be very excited to see. Hopefully lots of my patients and their loved ones will have a really big party. I just don't want it to hurt. And that's what I do for people. Yeah. What do you do when I think about you describing that terminal agitation? Mm -hmm. um, what do you do when they're there's family involved or loved ones or partners or spouses. And how do you manage? Cause it's, it's one thing for you to be able right. to control just you and the yeah. person that's dying, but you got a bunch of personalities involved. What happens? It's easier than you think, Allison. So I'm describing, it's not like I'm describing some like arcane concept. Mm. I, I educate the family and say, I believe this is terminal agitation. Mm -hmm. And we talk about them feeling their feet on that pathway and getting ready to start that next journey. And they'll say, oh my God, yes, mom was talking to dad this morning and he's been dead for 20 years. And right. she was trying to get out of bed and, you know, get her purse. And um, it makes sense for them and it's comforting. It helps them see with a much stronger possibility what the patient is experiencing in ha not being alone, mm -hmm. not just um, that person closing their eyes and being in some black velvet, black abyss alone. Right. It, does, it does not appear to be that way from what my patients share with me in the last moments of their life. When I describe terminal agitation, mm -hmm. it makes sense to the family. And they say, oh my God, yeah, Jimmy and dad and our younger son, Will, and all these people are there with her and she's really excited. She wants to be with them. It's like, yeah, yeah. yeah. So don't, so don't worry. It's going to be okay. Have you ever, have you ever had a like nightmare situation with the family, like interfering in your work or whatever you're trying to do on behalf of the, the patient that's dying? Abs absolutely. Um, I wouldn't call it a nightmare. The need for control in uncontrollable situations and also the need to, you know, one of the things I hear all the time from family members, I'll check up on them after we've both, you know, lost yep. the patient they'll express to me how worried they are that they killed their loved one. <gasps> uh, yes, they're giving the medications that we prescribed as hospice providers. And, you know, they'll be like, I, I gave her, you know, that dose of morphine that was ordered and then she passed. 
um, what happened was we get locked in our bodies with pain mm. and with agitation, with anxiety. Mm. We get locked into this physical body. You provide comfort mm. and the person is able to choose that moment and say, thank you and let go. So what they did was provide relief. They didn't, you know, kill their human. I've repositioned people and had them pass because they got more comfortable. I have told someone that I love them and they passed right after that or that that they're doing a good job and that it's okay. And then they pass. They're waiting, you know, for that moment and it's there. You got to give. Okay. So I know we're like preempting this, but you got to give me the, you got to give me the all clear. You got to give me when it's my time, you got to give me permission because I'm stubborn and I'm super gritty and I don't quit. And that in this situation, I will need to, I will need to let go. I will need to surrender to win, you know, and that's kind of counter to my nature. Um, So strictly logistical how do you maintain any semblance of a normal schedule if you are supposed to be kind of the person to be there at someone's death, but you don't know how long that's going to take or you don't know when that's going to happen? Like logistically, how does that work? Right. I guess the short answer is you can't, you can't be everywhere at once and you do have to have, um, time where you unplug yeah and you take your nurse practitioner hat off and you have like a treasure chest in my room Mm. every day when I get home I take my stethoscope off and I put it in that and Mm. it's got a little kind of lock Mm. and I lock it and for me symbolically that means now I'm a wife and now I'm a a I'm a dog mom and I'm you know whatever I'm a terrible drummer I'm all of these things but at that point I'm not a care provider but you can't turn your heart off and you will you'll see you'll have dinner and laugh because you'll think of one of your patients or wish them well or everyone will be making a toast and you'll secretly include their name or something they're always part of you but you do you have to maintain a work-life balance or you'll burn out you are so you sound so emotionally healthy I'm serious because like <laughs> kudos because thank you. I don't know how you would do your job um, and be a wife and a dog mom, you know, and do those things well if you didn't have the oxygen mask on yourself and you didn't recognize the importance of self-care and you're right. That's right. exactly the way to put it. Um I, um, in my care of the caregiver, I have like a PowerPoint, like a presentation that I give sometimes on self-care on making your work sustainable Mm. because the really bad side of being called to be a healer and not learning how to make it sustainable is not only is your call to healing, your career's cut short, but you will believe that you are a charlatan, Mm. that you're not helpful and that you're just, you just are not good at the job. You're just not cut out for it. Yeah. And that's not true. The most caring people are the most vulnerable to compassion fatigue. You got to figure it out. How, how do you do it? Yeah. And do it well all the time. And that's by taking care of yourself. Definitely. Yep. Okay. So um, is there anything else or one thing that you wish people 
thought about palliative care or one thing that you just wish people would understand or? Um, about palliative, I, I wish everybody understood that it's not hospice, that it's a, it's a different specialty mm-hmm. where quality of life, including you, your family, what's important to you, what's not important to you, and integrating that into your plan of care. I also heard all the cats. I often spend my afternoons calling oncologists and pulmonists, pulmonologists and cardiologists, making sure everyone knows what the patient is taking or if they, they're not taking something because they're like, I hate this Lasix. It makes me get up and, and pee at night. I'm not going to take it anymore. Like, mm-hmm. um, making sure everyone's on the same page, palliative and quality of life, listening to you, loving you and managing your symptoms really well. Mm -hmm. That's its own specialty. This has been like, I, I feel like I've learned so much about this whole thing. Um, I enjoy you even more. I don't know how I could enjoy you anymore. The second oh, I just you, wait, like, give it time, let it marinate. As soon as I met you, I was like, "Oh, I love her. She's so great. You are so vivacious and effervescent." Thank you. I'm sad that the people that listen to this probably won't have the opportunity to meet you in person. It does translate well your energy through this medium. Yeah. But meeting you in person, there's nothing like it. Oh, listen, I'm five stars meeting me. Ah, Thank you, Cecilia. I think you're great too. Um, Well, as I try and say to all the guests, um, you know, I, I, I so appreciate this because the most valuable commodity that we have is time. Right. So taking True. time away from your work, your patients and your husband and your fur babies. Um, I so appreciate it because I think this conversation is actually going to really help inform people um, as to kind of what your field's all about um, and uh, help people as well. Um, yeah. Because they're, if you're not, <laughs> if you're not in a situation like mine, you've no freaking idea like what this what's available to you and you you might really be afraid of those what it's going to be like to die and and think that it's going to be super scary and that you're going to be alone or that it's just gonna be you and your crazy family and you know it's not there is there are people that can help um Mm -hmm. and and you the idea of you um brings me comfort when I get scared and I'm just so grateful to have you on my team. I'm always here for you. Unless you're, it's your day off. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks for listening to this week's episode of no time to waste. Now we've got Ethan Zahn to interview another cancer crusher on behalf of our partner active against cancer. Thanks, Allison. I'm excited to bring on Shannon Miller. All right. Yay. Hey, Shannon, how you doing? I'm good. How are you? I'm doing wonderful. It's been uh, forever since I last saw you on the Active Against Cancer panel discussion we have. I know. I enjoyed the panel so much, though. I always feel like I learn so much, and I'm always so inspired being um, amongst other athletes and cancer survivors. It's, it's just uplifting. Yeah, same here. And I, you know, I think there's a lot to be learned from folks like us who have had a lot of experience as a competitive athlete and then have had to go through a cancer diagnosis and kind of how some of the skills you learn as an athlete can be 
you know, translated into the cancer journey. And uh, that's kind of what we'll get into today. But before all that fancy fun stuff, I just want uh, you to share with everyone a little bit about your athletic background as a gymnast and all the success you've had. Oh, goodness. Uh, well, I had a very long career, yeah. so this could take some time. No, I, um, so I, I started gymnastics when I was five, absolutely fell in love with the sport in 1992. I uh, got to be a part of my first Olympic team in Barcelona and ended up coming home with two silver and three bronze medals. And then came, came back as part of the 1996 uh, Magnificent Seven Olympic team. And I uh, came home with, of course, the first ever women's team gold from that competition and uh, a first for uh, the U.S. Just an incredible time. And as an athlete, like prior to your cancer experience, and we'll get into that a little bit, did you have any any major setbacks? You know, I know you you, you missed um, the 1992 World Championships due to an injury. And I just, I know I did a little research on you, so that's what I'm talking about. <laughs> and then, um, you know, the year of the... Um, you know, you had another one in, I think, around 1996, you had an injury. What was it like, you know, being at the top of your game, getting injured, and having to deal with that whole scenario? I think 1992, you're right. That was a really big moment for me. I had a, a pretty difficult injury. I had fallen off bars one evening at training, getting ready for those games, and dislocated and broke my left elbow. And this was 10 weeks prior to the Olympic trials. For the 92 Olympic Games, my first opportunity uh, to represent my country on the Olympic stage. It's what I'd been working toward. And it seemed like in an instant, all of that was gone. And I remember walk, going out of the, actually being wheeled out of the hospital the next morning. And my coach met me at the door. And he could have said a lot of things. He could have said, I'm, you know, I'm so sorry, honey. It's, you know, just not the right timing or, you know, this is unfortunate, you know, hey, maybe another four years. There could have been a lot of things or he just didn't even have to show up. But he looked me straight in the eye and he said, all right, I guess we have some work to do. I'll see you in the gym tomorrow. <laughs> and it was wow. exactly what I needed to hear because it was that moment that I knew he believed in me so I could believe in myself. And it, it was a lot of hard work, but. I realized how hungry I was um, to really be back out on that competition floor. And I think mentally it was so difficult that it forced me to really decide how hard was I willing to work. And that whole mental side of things, I think the general perception of, you know, sports or professional athletes in this world is that it's primarily a physical thing. You know, if you are dominant and physical being and you get incredible genes to make you do these all incredible things. However, I think it's just as much mental. So how did like the mental side of gymnastics help you overcome this challenge? And then maybe kind of, you know, I'd love to learn a little bit more about your cancer story. I think often, I think you're right. I, I think the mental is often even more important than the physical. Mm. And and I don't want to discount the physical. I mean, certainly, um, you know, I, I'm, uh, I love gymnastics, but I will be honest, I was not the most talented. I was <laughs> not the strongest or the most powerful or the most flexible. I had to really work at it. I decided early on that I was just going to be the hardest worker, period. And that's what I had to do on the physical side. But I think the mental side came very naturally to me because I was very shy. So I kind of lived in my own head, in my own bubble. 
And um, I think that really came in handy, whether it's blocking out the crowd when you're having to focus on a four inch wide balance beam or utilizing the crowd for that extra boost of adrenaline you need at the end of a very long floor routine when your legs feel like jello and you don't know if you can finish. Whatever that is, I think the mental training is incredibly important and understanding how that mental helps you is, is so critical. Yeah. And so now, you know, fast forward, your career's over, you don't got the crowds yelling and screaming for you. And you are faced with probably one of the biggest challenges in your life, a, a diagnosis with ovarian cancer. What was that all about? I, so I was diagnosed in January of 2011. with a how old were you at that time? I was early four, no, early thirties. Okay. Um, and for me, it, it, I would say it came out of the blue, but mostly because I did not think about the signs and symptoms of ovarian cancer. And I work in the health and wellness space. <laughs> I have been an advocate for women's health for as long as I can remember. And that came on kind of as I retired from competitive uh, gymnastics. And we talk about cancer awareness. We talk about uh, knowing your body and getting to your exams and early detection, all of those things. But when it came to my own health, I did not listen to my body as well. And because I didn't really know what the signs and symptoms were for ovarian cancer, um, I didn't realize that I had three of the primary symptoms, bloating, um, sudden weight loss, stomach aches. I had been dealing with that and I wrote them off as just benign symptoms, things that women have to deal with sometimes on a monthly basis. Right. And, um, you know, things that happened after I had my child or, you know, whatever that was, I wrote it off and just kept going. And I think I was just very fortunate that my doctor took the time to say, wait a second, there's something not right here. We need to look at this further. So I kind of went into this whirlwind of tests and scans. And then after surgery, found out that it was ovarian cancer and kind of reverted back to that competitive mentality that I knew so well through sport and started thinking of it in that way. And how am I going to fight this? And how, what do I need to do today to, to further? I don't know exactly where we're going to end up, but what can I do today to help? And I think um, switching back to that mindset was a really important step for me. And so you think having an athlete's mindset help you gain a little bit of control back over, I guess, your mental side or the physical side or all of it? I think all of it, mm -hmm. but especially the mental. Um, for me, going back to that mindset, and it's something I travel across the country talking about these days because it is so critical, you know, the importance of goal setting and teamwork and positive attitude and resiliency, you know, that get back up attitude. Not everything is going to steadily move forward, you're going to sometimes take two steps back just to take one forward and kind of having a little bit of patience and grace with yourself along the way. Um, but I always say what's really important is that this is not a mindset that only Olympic athletes can have. This is a mindset anyone can attain. We just have to kind of remember it and, and actually work through those steps. I always think of that as the foundation. I call it the gold medal mindset because it really is. It's, it's that mindset that you have to kind of place yourself in, in order to each day, just get up and take that next step. So when you were in the middle of, you know, your treatment, um, and kind of, uh, emerging onto the other side of it, how did, were you, were you active? Were you physically active and were you mentally active? And if so, like, how did you structure 
that side of your survivorship, I guess you can say. There were days when my goal was to get up, get dressed and walk twice around the dining room table. And that was a win. Yeah. Um, But when I could do 10 minutes of yoga or 10 minutes of get outside and and stroll my my 15 month old son around the park, those were really good days. And I started to realize, and this was before I had learned that there's so much research um, about the importance of being active during and after treatment. Um, But just started to innately realize that my nausea eased up a bit when I was able to be more physically active. Um, I actually had a little bit more energy. The fatigue was incredible. I'd never felt anything like that. But when I was able to kind of force myself to get moving, I did feel better. What advice could you potentially give to someone who is just, you know, struggling right now uh, that needs to get out of these horrible, you know, thoughts or mental state? I mean, I think my faith is probably first and foremost. And, and for me, it's, it's kind of a natural thing to try to figure out, okay, what are those things I can control? What are the things I cannot control? Put those in the God box. <laughs> and, <laughs> and then if there's things I can control, then, then how do I work the hardest? You know, how do, what do I do next? And I'm a list maker. So in my brain, I'm constantly thinking, okay, what do I need to achieve? How do I get there? What do I do today? What do I do this week? What do I do this month? It, that's a very natural thing for me to do and break down those goals. So that's kind of how I, you know, for better or worse, that's how my brain works and what kind of got me moving again. Wonderful. And I know you are a very charitable person and just looking at the, all the things that you're involved with, it really looks like you've used your horrible situation, your crisis in your life to really do incredible work in the world. And uh, I'd love to, for you to share some of the, the work that you're doing. I mean, I know you the, you do stuff with Active School Ambassadors, GSK, Our Way Forward, you know, the Yao Cancer Fund. Um, it's incredible to see what you've accomplished. Not only that, with all the work with, you know, young female athletes. So uh, what are you up to now? And what, where do your passions lie? And what excites you most about uh, doing good in this world? I think uh, my passion remains the same as far as um, health and wellness for women and children. And, and I don't mean to leave the men out. I, just, <laughs> I don't know as much about you guys. <laughs> well, if you have but, any questions, let me know. <laughs> um, but it really has been such a passion from uh, the days that I, I finished competing and realized I didn't know enough about how to take care of myself. I had a lot of women around me that did everything for everyone, but then put their own health on the back burner. They never had time to get to the doctor, didn't have time for breakfast in the morning or a workout. And I thought that if I could use my platform to help women just not feel guilty about making time for their health and understanding that if, you know, if you're not healthy, you can't be there for all of those who depend on you. So trying to change the mentality of how we think about our own health, and and really that is for everyone. Um, but for me, whether it's my mother's cancer diagnosis, whether it's what I've gone through and, and continue on my journey, um, those have only increased the passion I have for health and wellness. If you'd like to support Active Against Cancer's initiative with Morris Sloan Kettering Cancer Center and help cancer patients stay active through treatment with virtual fitness programs, Check out activeagainstcancer.com backslash podcast. That's A-K-T-I-V against cancer.com backslash podcast to learn more and donate online. Just be sure to put in no time to waste in the comment box. So get out there and maximize your moments and keep crushing it.
See you next time.